Hi, I'm Alice from the Postdoctoral Development Center at Queen's University Belfast, and this is our career podcast, The Theory of the Postdoc Evolution. In this 25th episode, recorded in June 2022, our postdoc Claire Tonry talks to Kyle Matchett, who was a former postdoc at Queen's and is now a lecturer at Ulster University. Kyle talks about teaching, leadership, and his experience of changing institutions while becoming a PI. Enjoy! So I'm going to introduce then Dr. Kyle Matchett, who is a lecturer in molecular immunology and principal investigator at the School of Medicine at Ulster University. At a very high level, Dr. Matchett's research is focused on understanding the molecular pathways that drive childhood and adult acute myeloid leukemia. Prior to moving to Ulster University, uh, Kyle did both his PhD and his postdoctoral research here at Queen's. So he was working next door in the what's now known as the Patrick Johnson Centre for Research. Throughout his career, he has won numerous awards and published in many uh, internationally recognised journals, which I'm not going to name all here. <laughs> and he's since joined Ulster in 2018. Dr. Matchett has been awarded over £1 million in funding. He's a PI on a recent high impact €4 million Euro Strand 3 Higher Education Academy North to South Award um, to the All Ireland Cancer Research Institute. And he also works with collaborators in the US and in Dublin. Um, so with that introduction, um, which is just a very brief overview of your career so far, I'm going to bring back to the very start with my first question. So for around the time you did your undergrad and you moved into a PhD, what were your initial career goals at that stage? Maybe at what stage did you think that an academic career was something that you wanted to pursue? Um, yeah, good question. So whenever I was doing my undergraduate, which was at Queen's in Physiology, um, I had no real interest in cancer research at all. Um, I, I was quite interested in sport. I still am quite interested in sport and, and football and so on. Um, so research didn't really interest me, to be honest. I did really, really well on my A-levels. So I got straight A's at A-level, but during my degree, I struggled quite a bit, actually. Um, I didn't do well at all. And in first and second year, I basically scraped through. I, I don't really know why. Looking back, it just didn't really click with me. In final year then, um, I don't know if it's still the same way, but we had to rank the projects that we wanted to do from first down to last. And um, I ranked all the ones I was interested in first. And at the bottom was the kind of the cancer research projects. Um, and I ended up getting into one of the cancer research projects over at the Royal. Um, and I have to say, from, from day one, I, I absolutely loved it. I, I can't overestimate how, you know, how much of an impact it really had on me. I actually remember one Friday walking into stairs in the Royal thinking to myself, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I just, just love what I was doing. And the research was really interesting. It wasn't anything really uh, different or anything like that, but it, it really was like one of those awakening moments or, or something like that. So from that point on, really everything from then was really focused on, on research and, and what I wanted to do. Because of my marks in first and second year weren't fantastic. Um, I kind of got through with a 2-1. I got a PhD, thankfully. And nowadays I probably wouldn't have had the marks to get one. Um, and, and love my PhD. You know, I was in a really ambitious lab in, in the CCRCB, um, which is based over at the city at that stage. I had in my lab postdocs who are now kind of senior investigators within sort of the Patrick Johnson Centre. And then from there on, I guess it was just it was postdocs and, and get my own funding and then wanting to be independent and, and stuff like that. So the, the big moment for me to answer your question um, was really around my honours project. Um, so even in my own teaching now, it, it's just another module that's in some respects, but you can't underestimate the impact of students coming to your lab for the first time, um, whether it be online or, or in person, and the, the impact that can have on, on students. So massive, massive impact on me, and really appreciate those PIs at Queen's who took the time with me to, to do that. 
Yeah, I think, I think that's really interesting. It can uh, it can surprise you sometimes how much you think when you're under, doing your undergrad. It's a lot of rote learning and stuff. Um, it's only when you actually get to experience what research is that you'll decide if either if you like it or not. It's usually it'll flip pe- people one way or the other kind of thing. Um, so what, as you were progressing through your research then, like how did you find developing your own research niche? You know, how did you find it becoming like getting that independence and getting your own funding and things like was that difficult or was there... Was there something that clicked for you that when you realized that there was something you could work independently on? Yeah, that's a really good question, Claire. I think for me, we had applied for an equipment grant from Cash for Kids. I'm sure you've heard of them on Cool FM and so on. They do Cash for Kids and we'd apply for an equipment grant, which we got. So I was working on acute myeloid leukemia, which is can affect obviously adults, mostly adults, but also children as well. So most of our research was really on the adult disease, but also some um, children as well. So we got this grant anyway, and I had to go to one of the big banks. It was the Ulster Bank, I think it was, in Belfast, to kind of give a talk about the, the money that we, we received. I was given like a short talk about that work. And in the audience, there was quite a lot of people who were getting money from Cash for Kids as well. Pete Snodden and the Cool FM crew and all were there as well. And I gave a talk anyway. It was nothing. It was actually probably one of the talks that didn't really go that great. That was really given. I thought, this is just what I'm even saying here. And I went back to my seat. And I was walking back to my seat. This lady with an English accent said to me, I really want to chat to you afterwards. So unbeknown to me, the kind of founder of a massive charity in England called Little Princess Trust was actually in attendance and they funded millions of pounds worth of childhood cancer work. And to cut a long story short, she asked me then, you know, we really like what you're trying to do. Would you consider applying for a project grant from us? Uh, and I said, yes, absolutely. So I went back to my PI and we wrote one together. Um, at that stage, on project grants, postdocs couldn't go PI, so I went COI, which was great. Um, but got a lot of sort of acknowledgement for that and we got the grant and that was the first of, of several grants we've got from the princess trust so in one sense we kind of fell, fell into in a, in a sense in other sense it, it was really a niche as well and as i began to become more experienced in the early area i realized you know in northern ireland not very many people are working in this space because it's quite a motive area as well it can be you know reasonably well funded and then i quite enjoyed the idea of, as well networking with other centers as well for things like clinical samples we don't get many paediatric cases in Northern Ireland because we're quite a small country. So it means networking with the likes of London and, and the centres in, uh, in the UK and the States and stuff too. I think haematology always appealed to me too because I'm going to be a little bit biased here, but a lot of the breakthroughs that are made, I, I think anyway, in, in the life sciences are often made in haematology first around like even the sequence and stuff, a lot of CRISPR work as well. Um, and simply because we can sample the blood really easily rather than um, other cancers, which are a lot more invasive. So... I like the fact that it's quite a cutting edge field as well. And it brings together lots of things I'm interested in, like, like cancer, I do a lot of drug screening work, genomics, um, proteomics, and so on too. But again, to answer your question, how did I get into this field or, or get the niche? I think it was sort of finding something that I'm really interested in. It's my lab's a track record for, and then trying to identify something that I could call my own. And at the same time, we were able to get that, that funding, I suppose, from, from the charities and so on. And then, yeah, the rest is history, I guess. It sounds on paper like, yeah, it's, it's gone quite smoothly, <laughs> um, but I'm sure there were points where it wasn't all running so well. So were there ever any moments when you maybe wavered from your goal or considered maybe academia is going to be a difficult path and non-academic career might work? And then if you did have that kind of wobble, how did you get yourself back on track? Um, yeah, another really, really good question. I think, I, th- I think one of the things I want to make clear today is that yes. My CV looks quite good and so on too, but there's, it's been littered with with failures or, or disappointments or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think for most people, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's the same. Everyone here, I'm sure, has had 
disappointments and um, things that haven't worked out and so on through have been for job interviews that I haven't got. Um, I've had grants rejected, I've had lots of papers rejected too. So I suppose for me, again, that's your question around one of the times I've thought about it. I probably didn't think about it a lot. I think since going back to that honors project kind of epiphany moment, I knew it was what I wanted to do. And I think having that sort of determination and that vision for what you want to do in your career um, allows you to have a bit more maybe resilience as well, because you have that inner, I don't know, inner purpose or, or whatever. I, I definitely don't think academia is a, a better career than, than other careers. I absolutely don't, don't think that is a, as a, at all. I have, I have incredible respect and, you know, and friends and stuff who do lots of things outside of academia. Probably to answer your question, coming to the end of contracts is, is, a, big, is a big difficult time when we get those letters with, uh, I don't know, um, six months to go and stuff too. I, I'm married as well, I have two young kids, so you know my wife's got a good job, thankfully, but for everyone, I guess money's an important thing, and I think I'm a part of an ECR strategy group with the university and chairing that at the moment. So we're, we're thinking about all those difficult questions. And it's the same, I think, across the UK sector that something has to be done because um, we're, we're losing too many good people. And I think it's it's quite unsettling when you get those kind of letters. So I suppose coming to the end of one of those contracts or maybe getting a job, that a job sort of rejection if I went for an interview was probably times whenever I thought about it. Did I consider anything else? Again, and I don't mean this, industry's never really appealed to me, not because it's not a really good job, but working for a company or our industry has, has never really appealed for me. I think if I did think of doing something outside of industry or outside of academia, sorry, it would have been maybe forensics or something like that. I thought that was quite interesting. And again, going back to sport, I love the whole idea of development and, and growth and coaching and so on. So maybe something like, I don't know, a sports scientist at Arsenal or something like that, maybe. But it's, it's healthy to ask those questions of yourself. It's really healthy to have doubt or have questions about where you want to go. It's really important to get out and go for walks and reflect about where you want to go to. And everyone says it, and it's so true that the, the road to where you want to get to isn't a straight path. It's, you know, it isn't a straight path and everyone's facing disappointments. And I think as things have progressed for me a little bit more, um, tend to be in the room a little bit more with, with people who are senior leaders and, and, and people who are really good at what they do and a lot more experienced and better than I am. And you realize in those rooms, there's that you know, people feel as well. There's um, people have their same anxieties that everyone else has, and it's just it's just life. You know what I mean? And, and it's realizing that academia and any other career isn't isn't perfect, and it's tough, and it's hard work, and at times you have to suffer. Uh, no, I think I think you're right. I think um, for a lot of us, it's I suppose it's the instability and the the two years of a contract goes so fast. <laughs> it's always you you know you're there's the relief when you get two years, and then the six months to, like countdown seems to come up on you really quickly. Um, just to move on then, so to your job in Ulster, so you got that job in 2018 and it does seem to be, Ulster's kind of known for being more teaching heavy. So how did you qualify for that? Did you have to get a, any teaching experience while you were in Queens or I mean, do they accept you without a lot of teaching experience and let you learn on the job or how does that work? So, so teaching is is a big a big part. Um, I have lots of friends at Queens as well in academic positions and I think Ulster probably does have a bit more teaching maybe than Queens, although I think teaching loads for academic, academics at Queen's. For my friends anywhere in the School of or in, in Life and Health Sciences, it's definitely increasing. If I think compared to universities in the South, like NUIG and, and RCSI and UCD and so on, I think our teaching loads aren't aren't as bad. So I think, um, I suppose at the outline, I was thinking if, if there's jobs coming in Ulster and people think maybe oh, my research might suffer for that, I think the teaching load is, is totally manageable and, and fine. 
yes, you do have to have qualifications to, to kind of get into to get into teaching, I suppose, and get into the role of Ulster. Um, the PG Shet's a really important one. I think it's I'm not sure we're still called that now. Um, one of the things I did was because I kind of knew what I wanted to do quite early on, I, I wanted to get my PG Shet quite early. So I finished my PhD in 2010. And I actually got my PhD or my PG Shet about three years later. So it, it worked quite interestingly because to do your PG Shet, you have to have experience in teaching. And you know, that was working like that. So I was trying to get experience um, at Queen's, which I got I was teaching um, undergraduate, I was teaching PhD students starting in the CCRCB. They have like a, a few introductory modules that they do. I taught in that as well and special study modules at, um, in medicine too. So yeah, I was able to get quite a good bit of experience. And the other part too that was interesting, which helped me, I think, in my interview for Ulster was that during your PG shit, you, you're able to do like a research project as well. And I did a research project looking at attitudes to, to leadership and mentorship and so on within postgraduate research students. So that was, that was something I think that was helpful too. But teaching is important and especially teaching, I think, in your area of expertise, I think it's important too. And yeah, but I think that's really helpful to know because um, I think some people don't, aren't aware of where they can find their teaching opportunities. Um, and it's interesting to know how proactive you were in getting the PG set at a very early stage. I think some people only do that in hindsight or... I know when you started here, Queen's, I think they insist that new lecturers do it if they don't already have it. So then just in your, again, in your current role, how did you find that transition uh, to PI then and getting your own research grants? Was that a challenge? And do you also have similar stipulations whereby you're kind of on a trial period for a couple of years before you're made permanent? Or is it, you know, is there a lot of pressure in the early days or, or did you feel a bit more secure? Um so, so I have to say, you know, Ulster have been fantastic with, with me. I, I think they're a fantastic institution. I genuinely believe that. Personally, I feel the two things I needed for my career were freedom and support. And I get both those things in abundance. So freedom to kind of do what I want to do as far as my research goes, freedom to kind of teach in the modules that I want to teach on, freedom to kind of work from where I want to work from. Um, and they've been really, really good in allowing me that. Now, of course, I have... I have things that I need to do and, and responsibilities to fulfill and I do those. The other thing, so apart from freedom, is also support. And again, that, that comes in, in bagfuls as well. So I've been really, really thankful for, for both of those things. So the transition was initially was pretty, pretty easy. Um, so I started in October and I had no real teaching given me more than a couple of lectures until the, the next academic year. So it was actually really, really nice. I was able to kind of get trying to get my research off the ground have lots of copies with people in chat and just really enjoy it and read Twitter and read emails and stuff like that. I, I obviously, I was working hard, but you had lots of time to do things like that. And then, and then the big shock came, I think, around the August time where I was given my teaching load for next year, which in hindsight wasn't that big, but I think it was just because it was given to me for the first time saying, my word, I have to coordinate a module now and all these kind of things. So again, Ulster's very good at mentoring you through that time and, and sort of supporting you and so on too, which has been great. The other question about do you have like a trial period you have a, th- a probation period for three years which um which i've passed and again you know it's 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 a re- it is a competitive environment but i've never heard language around if you don't achieve these things you'll not be here anything like that it's never been i'm sure they're helping people who that's the face that but again the culture and the language at the university is, is really supportive you know we've hired you we're going to invest in you we, we see potential in you and we're here to support you and, and, and you know we hope you have fun and really enjoy it and, and, and achieve what you want to achieve there are targets and stuff to, to achieve but they're all you know reasonably manageable the center that i work in the the we hear a lot hear a lot of kind of talk at the moment about culture and environment and so on as well and, and the culture i think within in our center and within my lab is 
easily without doubt the best culture that I've ever worked in. The culture is, is phenomenal. You know, yes, everyone's ambitious. We have some incredibly talented PIs. My sense is about 14 of us, but we are like family. And I really mean that. And I thought this, this is sort of too good to be true initially. But as I began to work more and more, I realized, you know, it, it really is like that. It's, it's a really fantastic culture. Um, people have responsibilities and so on too. And yes, we're not all alike. People get on better with other people, but it's been been a really, really nice place to, to work. And for promotions at Ulster, we, we're judging three things. So that's your teaching and your research and your civic contribution. So Ulster is a civic university in Northern Ireland. So that means that contribution to the community and so on, and also your leadership. So I suppose for me, what I'm trying to do at the moment is I hopefully think about promotion in the future is that every commitment that I have and all the things I'm trying to do, I have a clear vision of where I want to go in my career, is looking at those three things and thinking, okay, anything I'm saying yes to, how does that map back to, you know, advances in research papers, grants, et cetera? How does it map back to my, to my teaching? How does it map back to my leadership? And I think, I suppose, one piece of advice, you're going to be having asked this, but one piece of advice I give to anyone listening is just to be really careful about your priorities, that if you're saying yes to something, make sure it has a deliverable that's going to impact your career. Now, I want to preface that in the sense that don't become super selfish and like if it doesn't benefit me, I don't want to know. But if your calendar's full of things that don't map back to your career objectives and things that are actually going to be judged on, like the measurables, then I think you need to reconsider those things too. And I got that wrong sometimes as well. But you know, you have to have a really clear vision, I suppose, that the things you're doing or you're saying yes to um, map back the things that are actually going to make a difference in your career. I think that's actually really important because I think one of the things that postdocs often complain about is being stretched. You know, they're usually the person in the lab has to take on a lot of responsibilities. So I think it is important that, you know, if you stay focused on, on what you're saying, what you're saying yes to. Can I just can I just say something there one second? I, I, I know postdocs work incredibly hard and, and you guys I'm sure work really, really hard. I, I worked hard as a postdoc. I really worked hard as a postdoc and I had a lot of commitments as a postdoc. I, I mean this humbly. I only thought I worked hard as a postdoc until I became a PI. It's the workload is is phenomenal, and you know I'm not trying to say this in a, in a nice way. If you if you think that you're being stressed and asked to do a lot of things, you know, and I did think that there, it's it's a, my experience anyway. It's a whole different ball game. So I think what you're saying is really really great to hear. I think it's important to get those habits and those postures established now when you're a postdoc of, of kind of um, having clear vision and saying yes and no and not being afraid to say no because it's really going to exacerbate whenever you get into maybe a PI position or leadership in another job as well. I think that's actually yeah why these career insight things are so so important. I think um, everybody probably thinks they know what a PI does but it, you know we don't probably fully appreciate the different roles you have to take on when you when you step into that role and one of the things you touched on as well um, as a quality that you're assessed on is, is leadership. So what is your approach to leadership? And I, I understand that you seem to have had a very supportive mentor throughout your PhD and postdoc. And do you feel that's something that is important and that you try to instill now that you're a P- PI yourself? Yeah, so leadership is something I'm really, really um, passionate about. I was going to say I read a lot. I, I want to read a lot. I have two young kids, so it's sometimes hard to find time to read. But reading is really, really important. And it sounds really cheesy, but you've heard the quote before that leaders are readers. So it's really important to read and I try to read as much as I can. So within within my lab, we have a really clear, one of the important things about leadership is casting the vision. So you have a really clear vision of where you want to go to. So my lab know exactly what's expected of them. They know exactly where we're going to go. We talk about it 
all the time. We have three core values in the lab that we, we instill um, around research excellence. What does that look like? And we have clear deliverables in that, patient focus. So um, there's no point in our research being really patient focused if it's not excellent. And there's no point of us uh, having really uh, excellent research if it's not clinically orientated. So um, and we have some uh, a core value around the culture and environment that we're trying to develop as well. So you're responsible as a leader um, in, in creating that vision and creating the pathway of where people um, need to go. Leadership in, in my lab or how I, I like to do leadership as well is listening a lot of the time. So we have weekly lab meetings um, where people present all the kind of usual stuff, but we also have a thing that I do called a monthly discussion. So what that looks like is that once a month I get together with people in my lab, about six or seven in my lab, and we have time with them just to I just listen to them for an hour. And, and what I really want to do in that time is, is about personal development. I, I don't know, I haven't felt like this, but I know some friends have sometimes felt as a postdoc that you're kind of not being used, but you're kind of like, you know, a pair of hands for a PI. And I never ever want that to be the case in my lab. So what I what I try to do is everyone has their own developmental goals. Like what do you want to kind of achieve that isn't the right, isn't just sort of this traditional grants and papers? Okay, really interested in teaching. How can I support that? What does that look like for you? You know, what resources can I put your way to try and do that? Okay, you're really interested in social media and media engagement and science. Okay, here's some things I think you could do. How can I support you? So that time once a month shows them. They know that anyway, that I do care about them, but it shows them that I really do care about them because I get absolutely nothing out of it. It's their time, and I actually give them time off and stuff too. Again, leadership's just so important about setting culture. We try and do a thing as well where we give periodically, you know, everyone like they can use other days off of course they can but like a day off just to do something that sort of energizes them as well so it's just showing that you care deeply about the people that work for you you're trying to create a culture that is sustainable that's you know has that excellence and so on too and, and again going back to core values and stuff too you, you made the point clear that you get so many competing interests and stuff and too many emails are coming with as well um, and you have to have that focus going forward and sort of stick into that as, as much as you can mentorship just quickly to support that out if you're listening to this and you're in Queens or somewhere else, really encourage you to have an internal mentor and also an external mentor as well, because internal mentors are fantastic for who know the, the landscape of the institution, but sometimes they can be so institutionally minded. I see that at Ulster and other, other universities. Have someone outside the institution as well who's fresh eyes that see the, the bigger sector and the bigger kind of goals as well. Yeah, I have, have a couple of mentors who are really good. Also have really good trusted friends outside of academia, whether that's a, a spouse or a good friend or family member that you can talk to about your career and where you want to go. Have someone that you know isn't afraid to kind of challenge you on things as well. And those kind of things are really important to have people around you that you're talking to because it is a, it is a challenging and stressful career sometimes. Yeah, um, I think that's all really helpful advice, I think, as well. It sounds lovely to work in your research group, actually. <laughs> you might have a few applicants after this. Um, as well, you talked about uh, having a mentor outside of an institution. So, and I noticed from your CV as well, you have a lot of international collaborators. So, how did you approach networking, and how did you build up that that network of of collaborators that you have now? Yeah, um, there's, there's things that I'm I'm not good at, and I, I know that. Good to be kind of aware of your weaknesses, and I can talk all day about the things maybe I'm not great at. And um, bioinformatics is one of those things. But one of the things I am good at is I love meeting new people. So when it comes to a conference, it's it's a really natural thing for me to talk to people. There's other things I said I find really difficult, but I love talking to people about sports, science, families, whatever. So I find it quite easy to get to know new people. During my European kind of three-year work, I was away quite a lot, you know, Vienna, Munich, all that kind of stuff. So we did a lot of science, but we also spent a lot of time like chatting stuff too and, and all the rest. 
so it's something I think that does, it's not very many things, but it's one of the things I think that does come reasonably naturally to me. So some of my collaborations have just been friendships that have built up over the years because you're kind of in the same circles and the same sort of stuff like that. And other times it's intentional. So the one example of the intentional stuff is that I was writing a grant quite recently and the transgenic kind of facilities that we have at Ulster are, are being developed. They're not really just you're out there yet. I really needed someone to do some preclinical testing of a drug that we're working on at the moment. Um, yeah, I kind of identified the best person in the field. I noticed that they were having, like, he's a guy in New York, I noticed they were having open lab meetings where they're inviting people to kind of give a talk. And everyone that was sort of putting in were all US people. There's kind of this live Excel file. Everyone was like a US person and they're all like associate professors and stuff and big institutions. So I put my name down way out of my depth, give a talk, you know, and questions and stuff afterwards and uh, like I was super out of my depth like and I just emailed him afterwards and said look I'm writing this grant would you be up for uh, up for this and he's like yeah no problem and one of the busiest PIs around like publishes in nature every year and within two days he'd sent me all the briefs for all the objectives that I need but you know everything else and that grant starts actually in the first of, of July so I think with collaborations I'm not sure I'm not sure what advice I would give I think there's sometimes you have to be intentional and then sometimes those things will maybe come a bit more naturally I think that's really that's a really good example of um just like putting yourself out there and emailing someone and you know introducing yourself even remotely because I guess we're more used to remote meetings at, at the moment but hopefully now the conferences are are back up and running it'll kind of give us that chance to to network as well um I have a question about again changing institutions between Queens and Ulster uh, do you know of any advantages and disadvantages of changing institutions when becoming a lecturer and establishing your research group? And do you have any tips for anyone thinking of changing institution and how they prepare an interview? Um, I guess, especially when it's somewhere that they're not familiar with from not having worked there before. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Lots of questions there. I think the advantage of change institution. So, okay, one of one of the disadvantages of change institution is, is a practical thing. So it takes you longer to get things off the ground because you don't know where the sequences are. You don't know where the buffers are. You don't know where kind of the animal houses, all that kind of stuff. So it takes time to do that. And you underestimate how much stuff you probably know. So you guys are in the Malcolm Wilson Center. So you probably underestimate or forget how, how well you know that environment. So once you, you brought the new environment and it just takes time to, to kind of do that. That's one of the disadvantages. One of the advantages, which has been, been massive for me, is that you're no longer seen as the as a postdoc, you know what I mean? So at Queen's, I think, trying to be honest, but also trying to be careful, I, I love my time at Queen's, and I th- but I think one of the challenges I faced was that I probably felt a little bit, if I'm being honest, that I wasn't seen from me as, as well as I thought I was doing, if that makes sense. I thought on paper I was doing really, really well, and maybe when it came to opportunities and stuff that maybe I didn't feel that I was getting some of the opportunities maybe that I deserved and that's not you know um being critical of anyone that was just sort of in the way it was whenever I moved to Ulster then um I was I was kind of no one knew me as a postdoc everyone knew me as a lecturer and a PI and that you know that's a game changer I guess because you're just sort of getting the whole landscape kind of changes as well um so that was really really positive again going back to Queen's you know I love my time at Queen's. I have a three-year honorary position there, which has been renewed for another five years. So I'm always in Queen's, I'm always working there and so on too. It's just, you know, it is it is just challenging to try and to try and get a position. To answer your question, then the second question that came up around advice for uh someone who's gone for an interview outside of an institution is I guess common sense, just get, kind of really know your institution well that you're applying to, see what they value. So also like things like civic contributions, so on too know the strengths and weaknesses of the departments so if you're going for an interview 
to Glasgow, what are, what are they really big on? What is the centre that you're working on really big on? And be confident in yourself too. You know, I mean, everyone, most people anyway, are going for an interview, worked hard and got good things to talk about in your CV. So be confident and be bold and stuff too. And, and don't be afraid to, to kind of champion yourself a little bit. I think it's good to, to have context within a university you're moving to. So within Ulster, before I came from interview, it's easy because Ulster is just down the road, but I, I, I kind of knew some people and got to know some people as well. So trying to, to develop links in an institution a little bit, or at least get some context there um, is important as well. But it's been really, it's been a really, really good move for me. A really good move for me. And as I said, I love Queens and still I was there last week, still doing lots of stuff there and collaborating. And as I said, still I've got this new five-year honorary position. So again, I think Northern Ireland is such a small place that it's been great to see how the two institutions are working together as well um, across lots of different initiatives like North South and stuff too. So that's been really cool to see. I think that's I think that's really good. And I think it's really good for us all to have learned a bit more about Australia University. Um, still somewhat of a mystery, even though it's just down the road. And then my final question then to end uh, again on a positive note is, is what really motivates you about your work? You know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What's your favourite thing about your job? If you can name one or two um, high points. OK, so I, th- I think people, it's all around people. Um for me it's so first of all patience so if you think about the first thing is about patience so they're obviously people as well so i really really want to make a difference to patients in, in our research it has to be patient focused i would love that the research that we do in some way would have an impact for both for children who have cancer or children with leukemia in in northern ireland or, or further afield um i guess something that really motivates me is around people in, in my lab and the people that i work with so um, again, going back to the culture, what sort of culture are we trying to create, um, motivating people, leading people, training people. We have a vision in our lab that's one of the best labs in, in the UK to kind of come to, to really train that people really want to come to because of what of the, of the kind of culture that we've established and the kind of research that we do. And that's all around people. I, I really enjoy just working with the people that I work with as well. And then as well, I think one of the things that really motivates me at the moment, especially, is, is kind of this whole All-Ireland thing. So. There's been a lot of funding and a lot of energy cross-border as well. And I think, as I said, Northern Ireland are really, really small. And it's just really important to, you know, collaborate with universities in the South and stuff too. Um, so that's been really good. And we've got um, a £4 million North-South grant at the moment, which has been great. Yeah, so that's some of the things that really motivate me. Yeah. I think that's been, that's been really nice to hear, Kyle. Uh, especially sometimes, I guess, people associate an academic career as a, an isolated career in some ways. So it's interesting that actually it's the people you do work with that, uh, that keep you motivated. It's just nice to hear that perspective. But thank you so much again, Kyle, for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. For more career interviews, subscribe to the podcast or have a look at our website on go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast PDC. Bye.